We really are blessed as a congregation by the families and the covenant children God has given us. We're glad for all the young adults we have, especially college students. I recognize some that uh, I, I say recognize some I haven't seen before, <laughs> I haven't met before. Um, it's an interesting use of the word recognize, isn't it? When you know people by their face and you recognize somebody's not. Uh, one you've met before. That's a wonderful thing, and we welcome you to the service. Uh, this is Christ Community Church. Think about it, what it means. Christ, that's the center, that's first. Community, we're a body, a body of believers. We're a fellowship. We're those where Christ is the head, and each of us are individually gifted by Christ as members to minister to one another in the name of Christ and in service to him, reaching out first to our own church family and then beyond to our community in which Christ has missionally placed us, Christ Community Church, church, ecclesia, or kahal Yahweh in the Old Testament, those called out by the Lord. We just were reminded of that by Josh and his reading from Exodus 19, and that is what we are. Uh, this morning, we're proceeding in our, our um, series on Jonah. It's going to be, we're in Jonah chapter 2, it's going to be a briefer message because of all that we have in today's service, but, um, but I still want us to give uh, our attention to God's Word. You remember that we left Jonah, where? In the craw of some great sea creature. Belly of the whale, some would say. Well, it could have been. I don't know that it was a whale. Dagagadol, the uh, Hebrew, some great sea creature. And uh, uh, was he just inside the mouth? Was he inside a gullet? Was he inside the stomach? It's a, I have no clue. God had specially prepared this sea creature. What was it? I don't know. It was something God had prepared specially. We don't see him all the time today. Well, surprise, God had prepared it specially. And there was Jonah. And he writes this second chapter that we'll read in just a moment. From that place, slimy, cold, because most sea creatures are cold-blooded. Probably cold. Slimy, guess what? Dark. <laughs> so he lighted his little lantern and pulled out his parchment that was dry that he had with him after going down to the bottom of the seabed, pulled out his quill and his little inkwell and began to write this and compose this, right? Um, would you mind handing me that? Thank you, Gene. No, that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> how did he compose it? He composed it by meditating and reflecting and he had three days to do it. Three days and three nights. And in it, he draws from his intimate knowledge of the Psalms in particular. If we had time, and we don't this morning, we would look at many of the verses in chapter 2 and how they're direct quotations from the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David. And we would look at the context and see how they are pulled together and how how they point to something and someone. But even without doing that, even without doing that, I can tell you that they build. And they build to a climax in the last line of his, his psalm of praise, in which 
He rejoices in the salvation of God. And we're going to reflect on that in more detail in just a moment as we read the scripture and uh, meditate upon it. But I want to ask you this. Jonah praises God because he says he's saved. Jonah praises God for saving him. Now, where is Jonah? <laughs> All right. Is he saved? Well, not yet. This is a prophecy that he's going to be saved, is it? Is that what Jonah actually says? Or is Jonah truly saved even while he's in a submarine conveyance where God has sent, go to your room for three days and three nights and think about it. Keep that in the back of your mind. We sometimes get our eyes off God and on our circumstances like Peter on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus bids us come and we step out and we're fine and then we take our eyes off him and we look at all the circumstances and boom, down we go. It's easy for us to think our circumstances are so dark God can't mean anything good by them. How can we be saved? Oh, we're still in the middle of the vortex of something so dark. Keep that in mind. And now we turn to the word of God by Jonah, written later after he was on, on the beach, but composed then. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, Hebrew shill, hell, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. All the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in for. Ever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the sea creature and had vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
Thus far in God's word, the grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a few moments to reflect upon these verses, rich, replete with interconnections with the rest of your word, in the few moments that we have, may you direct our minds to that particularly which you intend us to focus upon this day. And in doing so, may we see Jesus and prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord to follow. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do hear much today from televangelists who promise immediate health and wealth as a sure sign of God's favor. I spoke with a uh, pastor of one of these uh, health and wealth churches and, and uh, asked him um, why it was he always seemed to drive the newest model of such an expensive luxury uh, make of car. And, and he said, I have to set an example. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I, I tell people that God's going to bless them with good wealth, with health and with plenty of wealth and prosperity, and I need to show them that that's the way it works. If you have faith enough, you get whatever you want. Is that the gospel? Have faith in God to give you what you want. What would Jonah have said? He wasn't driving a Cadillac. Mm. See, God gave him something that he needed. God gave him something beautiful and wonderful. What was it? A restored relationship with him. And you see, whatever trials we may go through, and Paul the apostle said he knew what it was to abound and what it was to be abased. He says, I have learned in whatsoever circumstances I am therein to be content. I... He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One of my mother's favorite verses before she went to be with the Lord. Yes, God has something in mind for us. But by contrast uh, with health and wealth, a prosperity doctrine, uh, when we last looked in on Jonah, he'd just been swallowed by that great sea creature within whose smelly tomb-like interior, he remained for a full three days. And yet his prayer from within the creature is a model of confident trust in God and celebration of his accomplished, past tense, rescue. Despite continued confinement in a hopeless biological prison. <laughs> hmm. See, the point, I think, of this chapter, and I would uh, commend to you for your own reflection prayerfully. The point of the chapter is this, that faith looks not to circumstances, but to Christ. Say that again. Faith looks not to circumstances, but to Christ. You say, Jesus' name isn't mentioned. Oh, no. We'll look about at that in just a moment. Notice two things. First, about God's judgments, and second, about God's purposes in them. Regarding God's judgments, they elicit our crying out to Him. That's often the purpose of His chastening hand upon His children. It's not to crush and destroy. 
If we are his people, and and Jonah, remember, was God's appointed prophet. We had looked earlier at uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and, and read how Jonah was the prophet that God had appointed to tell, uh, to tell uh, Jonadab, I'm sorry, to tell the uh, uh, King Jeroboam II uh, of the southern kingdom, the greatest and final uh, member of the, uh, of the dynasty of Jehu, that he was to recover all the lands of David's empire, uh, that is, except for the southern kingdom that God had preserved for the dynasty of David. And Jonah was the one that was sent by God to do that. Jonah was God's servant. Now, that didn't keep Jonah from having an idol. Not made by hands, but in his mind. You remember we talked last week about Jonah's idol. What was that? Jonah's idol was is patriotism. Patriotism can be a good thing. A very good thing to love our country. But remember that all allegiances for the believer are derivative from God. And any allegiance or any love that is put above him usurps his place in our lives and becomes for us an idol. Only as we love God first can we love as husbands and wives as God wants us to. As soon as we put either one of us puts the other ahead of God, the source of that love is choked off. You're standing on your own air hose, as it were. And Jonah had done that. He'd fled from the presence of the Lord. He had said, I quit. I resign my commission. As though we can choose to do that in the court of the Lord. And he went as far away as he knew how to go. And did God let him go? No. Why? Because God loved Jonah. Jonah? Look at what he'd just done. Yes, God loved Jonah. And he wasn't finished with him yet. I remember wearing a button some years ago. They were from the old Bill Gothard con- uh, uh, conferences, and it said PBP, G-I-N-F-W-M-Y, which spells absolutely nothing, but stood for, I can't pronounce it, stood for, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I may have some differences on some theological things with Bill Gothard, but that point is a good one, isn't it? Friends, he's not finished with me yet. My friends, he's not finished with you yet, if you're his child this morning. He wants us to cry out to him when he chastens us. Verses 1 and 2, uh, we read three times. He says, um, he prayed, verse 1, said, verse 2, I called to the Lord, verse 2, from the depths of the grave, I called again for help, in verse 2. You see, God intends us to cry out to him. Understanding that God controls our circumstances. Sometimes he does so in order to refine us specifically. And it's God's hand directly. Sometimes it's not apparent that it's God's hand. Because the agency may come through just what seems to be circumstances around us. Or it may come through evil people or things that are done to us that are unjust. And even in that, 
God is at work. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers who'd sold him into slavery, and now he is second only to Pharaoh and saves their family from famine. In Genesis chapter 50, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many souls as it is this day. God controls our circumstances. Verse 3, Jonah says, you hurled me. Wait a minute. It was the sailors who tossed him overboard. God said, or Jonah said, but you hurled me. And then he says, it's your waves and your breakers that have overwhelmed me. They're your waves, your breakers. By the way, all of the, almost every verse in this short meditation and prayer by, by Jonah, almost every one of them comes from the Psalms. God draws us, you see, to cry out to him. Verse 2, in my distress, I called to the Lord. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. Verse 7, my prayer rose to you. And that's when things are beginning to unravel around us. What do we do? We say, wait a minute, I'll, once I get a handle on this, then I'll talk to God about it. No, no, no. Wrong order. You say, well, I'm too busy to pray. No, you're not. Nehemiah was asked a question by the king, Artaxerxes. Why do you look sorrowful if you're the cupbearer to the king? That's not a good thing. But understand uh, what happened in old... In old Persia, ancient Persia, they had a cupbearer for a reason. (laughs) He tasted things. And then people watched him. Does he drop over dead? Then the king doesn't take it, and they haul the body out. That was a high position for a while it lasted. Well, it was, was, the king had many enemies. Well, the cupbearer had to be careful. It didn't look, you know, a bad look on his. And Nehemiah just heard about his own city, Jerusalem being destroyed and its walls torn down, its gates burned with fire and temples gone and, and he's, his countenance is sad. And he's on duty. And he has to taste the cup of the king. That's his job. The king says, Nehemiah, something's the matter. And Nehemiah, we're told, prayed in his heart and he answered the king. Think about it. Prayed in his heart, answered the king. Two things in that order. He did them quickly. To cry out to God. And then to do what you need to do. Keep depending on him. Recognizing his hand in what you're doing in your circumstances. Growth seldom comes when we're comfortable and at ease in Zion. No pain, no gain, is it written on many a gym. Marjorie Peters, a dear, dear elect lady now with the Lord, um, was uh, old enough to be my mother when I was a young pastor in doing church planting in Queensland, Australia. And um, at one point I shared with her privately some, some uh, struggles I was going through. I'll never forget what she said to me. <clears throat> very great wisdom. She was a mother in Israel. She said, God must love you very much to permit you to experience such trials. Don't waste your crisis. <laughs> Thought about that often since then. Don't waste your crisis. I've had opportunities to put that into practice. Sometimes not as well as I should have. And other times in, to, in, with the outcome that it's been a wonderful affirmation of God's work. In our lives, Uh, Jesus in the upper room, you remember, said to his disciples, "In, in the world you will have 
what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, he said. I have overcome the world. Apostle Paul writing to a mostly Gentile church in Philippi. It wasn't even a synagogue there, you remember. He planted that church basically on the riverside with a woman he met there, a dealer in purple, a businesswoman named Lydia who offered her home. One of the early um, uh, converts who attended that church was a jailer in Philippi who had whipped Paul, put him in shackles, and then been converted. And Paul says to them, Unto you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name. We don't like that in our comfort-oriented culture. We think that discomfort is a pathological condition to get out from under as quickly as possible. But we don't realize often that biblically, that suffering is a part of the journey that our captain has gone through before us and goes through now with us as what he has finished on the cross is now applied by his spirit in our lives as we journey through life and as he hones us to be reflections of his son. And he can't and won't do that without some suffering. But that suffering is purposeful for the believer. God's judgments are followed by God's purposes or overseen by his purposes. God's purposes for his people are for their salvation. Verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit, says Jonah. You know, in Isaiah chapter 43, first two and a half verses of that chapter, these beautiful words that, that um, uh, had not yet been written in Jonah's day or were being written about that time. They were uh, just about uh, um, uh, contemporaries with one another. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. When you, and it's all singular, pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He's God. He doesn't promise us a journey free from flood or from fire. He promises to be with us and to deliver us ultimately. In uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And I'd love to preach a sermon one day just on that verse. You see, God intends us to renew our worship of him. Verse 4, I will look toward your holy temple. Understand, Jonah's from the northern kingdom, where the temples of the northern kingdom, plural, one up in Dan, one down in Bethel, top and bottom of the northern kingdom, they're counterfeit temples with counterfeit altars and counterfeit priests, not children of Levi, Levi and, 
and, uh, and not even, especially not of, of uh, Aaron's descendants. Why were they put there? In order to prevent the uh, northern um, Israelites from going south of the border to worship at the temple on Zion that God had said, my name will rest there as Solomon had built it. And, and uh, they were to come three times a year. And the very first king, you remember, Jeroboam I, had said, uh-oh, I can't trust God to, to establish my dynasty like he promised if I followed him. I can't trust God to do that. If I let people go past the border and worship in Zion three times a year, they'll say, hey, why can't we just all get together again? They'll kill me and go back to David's dynasty. So I can't have that, said Jeroboam in his unbelief. And so he built those counterfeit temples. Even put golden calves in them. Appointed people who, just anybody who volunteered, I want to be a priest. Okay, you're a priest. And they were the priests. Terrible thing. Idolatry. That was the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. A sin that every single successor of every dynasty in the northern kingdom followed without exception, including Jeroboam II, the king, the great king at the time of Jonah. So when Jonah says, my eyes will go toward the temple, it's with the definite article, the temple, your temple. What temple is that? It's in Zion. It's the temple that God has appointed. What was the temple? It was the presence of the living God among his people. It had the Shekinah, the dwelling glory cloud of God, the cloud of the presence of the Lord. God said, I will dwell there with my people. But the temple was still an image of something that was more real. It was still a photograph, a preview of something that was more real yet. And that is that the living God who created the space, the, the farthest quasars and galaxies in the universe, who created our earth and everything in it, who formed you and me and gave us breath and life and being, who made our souls so that we could dwell with him for eternity. This God said that he would one day come and take flesh and dwell among us. John chapter 1 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him. The Word became flesh and tabernacled a while among us, and we beheld his glory, Shekinah glory cloud, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this Jesus came to live in a fallen world, in an occupied small border town, marginalized part of a huge empire, in the dusty roads of injustice and inequity, among the poorest of the poor, he came. And he lived in circumstances. You can't say, well, if he had it as hard as I'd. Oh, no. You can't say that. Jesus did not have it easy growing up. And he lived, nevertheless, a perfect, righteous life. And then willingly laid it down upon the cross. At the hands of wicked men. In order... That God the Father might, according to his purpose, lay upon his shoulders on the cross 
the sin of his people and his wrath be poured out and absorbed as the death stroke sank into the heart of his only begotten son for us. But Peter says it was impossible that the grave, that death should keep him because he's the Lord of life. He conquered death and sin by his resurrection. He showed himself to his disciples, ascended into heaven, reigns from there until the time comes when he's promised he will return in the clouds of glory to gather his own. Those who've gone before and those who are still living at the time he comes. That's the promise of God. It's the promise of the Lord's table that we'll partake of in a few moments. That we remember his death, that looks back. Until he comes, that looks ahead. And we live in the in-between zone that the Bible calls the last days. It's gone on now for two millennia. It may go on for another two days or another two millennia. We don't know. But we do know Christ will come. That the Father has appointed a day and an hour, and it won't tarry. In verse 9, here's the chastening that calls forth trusting confession and thanksgiving. Um, Jonah concludes his... his, uh, Prayer with verse 9. But I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. So he knows he's going to be let out of that sea creature. Then he says salvation comes from the Lord. And if you haven't already, underline those two lines. In your Bible or or in your bulletin. You see that's the name. Salvation comes from the Lord. In the midst of our circumstances, black as they are, where do we look? Peter's on the tempest, the sea in the midst of a gale. The storm is overwhelming the ship. He steps out at Christ's bidding. Where do we look? We gaze on him. And the word salvation is of the Lord in the Hebrew is the name of Jesus. It is Yeshua. And we read it again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You know, the angel Gabriel says in a dream to to, uh, Joseph, who's considering putting away his betrothed uh, wife, engaged fiance, if you will. And and, uh, he's thinking of that because she's pregnant. And he can't have that. And he doesn't want to make a public spectacle of her. Doesn't want to see her stoned. He's a just man, a kind man. And as he reflects on it, wondering, what should I do, Lord? God sends him a dream, and it says in it, don't be afraid to take Mary to, to your home, into your home as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Jesus, the Lord saves. Salvation is of the Lord, this line from Jonah. For he shall save his people from their sins. The mission and meaning of Jesus. I have taught world religions, Christian engagement with the world religions uh, many times at 
for seminary students. We visited, uh, in some instances, the great religious centers of Islam, of Buddhism, of Confucianism, Hinduism, and Shinto. All the world religions seek to provide a solution to the problem of brokenness in human experience, some sort of salvation. But only the Bible tells us of a Savior who comes among his people, God in the flesh, as Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what the elements represent. Oh, they don't change from being bread and wine. Juice, the Greek New Testament uh, word for wine includes either fresh or fermented. Uh, ours is unfermented. Uh, it's still wine by the New Testament definition. That bread and that wine doesn't change into blood, change into flesh. And yet we do eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood, as Jesus said in John 6, spiritually, as we understand that he is with us, present even in the giving and receiving of these elements by his spirit and his work in our hearts. How is it with your soul this day? Are circumstances overwhelming your soul? Are they moving the fix of your gaze from Christ onto those particulars? Brothers and sisters, Jonah chapter 2 reminds us that it's not the circumstances that prevent us from fellowship with God. It's the focus of our gaze. Is it Christ? And him crucified and resurrected and descended, coming again. Is it Jesus in whom is your trust? May it be so for you. If you're not sure, we will have after the service a prayer team led by an elder. To my right and to your left, if you have anything you'd like to have uh, prayer for you and with you, please come. And if you're wondering about your relationship with Christ, that's a wonderful time to do it. Or I'd be delighted to talk with you about it. Or someone here that you know knows Jesus. Ask them. Most important relationship you can ever have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the prayer of Jonah and the circumstances of his prayer. What they say, first of all, about you is you reach out to bring back and draw home a wayward child. And you do that so often with each of us who profess to be your own. And also what they tell us about what we are to do, Lord. And my prayer this day is that if there's any who does not know you in that way, that this may be the first day of the rest of their eternity by turning to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And may we who know you fix our gaze steadfastly on you in the midst of the circumstances through which you bring us, that you may hone us purposefully, that we may reflect Jesus and that we may be more like him. We pray it in his name. Amen.